Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hosea. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you that Last time I was before you, we talked about Hosea for today. We ran through the book, looking at some very practical things found in the book of Hosea. We won't list them all verbally, but they're on the screen before you. And here are 12 lessons that we learned from the book of Hosea. We kind of gave an overview of the book and then focused on some very practical things of how the message of Hosea would fit us today. One of those was at chapter 7 and verse 8, and that is a cake unturned. And I want us to go back and revisit that. We touched on that briefly, but I want us to expand upon that. And so you might be turning in your Bible to chapter 7 of the book of Hosea. So as you're turning there, let's remind ourselves of some things we know about Hosea. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He prophesied about 750 to 725 B.C. It was a time period in which there was political and moral and religious deterioration. The nation was going down the tubes. The point of the book, according to chapter 1 and verse 4, is to warn them of the inevitable doom that is coming. Their sins are listed, their apathy is apparent, and yet they are unchanged. Chapter 7 is a very colorful description of Israel's condition. And let's begin at verse 8 of Hosea chapter 7. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Well, what am I learning here in 8 through 10? First of all, he mixes himself with the people. In other words... Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, did not separate themselves from the Canaanites. They didn't do that at the beginning, they didn't do that in the middle, and they didn't do it by the time they were through, and they didn't do it when they came back into the land. So they did not maintain their separateness. So he mixed himself among the people. Verse 8 says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. Ephraim is a cake not turned. That is a picture, as we will see, of it being burnt on one side, but raw on the other. We'll make application of that in a moment, but let's go further putting it in its context. At verse 9, the aliens have destroyed her strength. Notice that aliens have devoured his strength. What does he mean by that? Well, notice at verse 9, but he does not know it. Their mixing with the nations, verse 8, has caused them to lose their strength and they're unaware of what's going on. In fact, he gives an illustration. He said, yes, gray hairs are here and there on him and he doesn't know it. It's like getting old and losing your strength. Well, the Bible talks about how the young man is known for his strength, but not the old man. The old man doesn't have the strength that the young man has. But perhaps sometimes men get old and they don't realize they don't have the strength they used to have. And he tries to lift something and he, he doesn't have the strength that he thought he had. Well, that's what Ephraim is like. Ephraim is like an old man that has, has forgotten he doesn't have the strength that he used to have. Doesn't realize he's lost his strength. And they've lost their strength because they mixed with the nations. Now notice at verse 10 now. They refuse to listen and the pride of Israel testifies to his face. But they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek Him for all this. So what have I learned in 8 through 10? They mixed with the nations. 
They failed and maintained their separateness. They're like a cake unturned, whatever that may mean. And the alien has destroyed their strength and they refuse to listen to their God. Let's go back now to verse 8. And I want us to focus on this phrase, a cake not turned. Your translation may say something very similar as a cake unturned. A cake not turned or a cake unturned. What does that mean? Well, pulpit makes an interesting comment that the book of Hosea contains strains of poetry of surpassing splendor. Yet here is an illustration from the cottager's kitchen. What's the point? Well, let's look at some translations that give us a little insight. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over, the New International says. The New Century says he's like a pancake cooked only on one side. You can understand what that means. You cook a pancake and you cook it on one side, it becomes burnt on that side, and it's raw on the other. That's what they were like. Ephraim is a cake unturned. The contemporary English version said they are a thin piece of bread scorched on one side. The New Living Translation says they make themselves as worthless as a half-baked cake. And so whether it's talking about a flat cake or it's talking about some other kind of cake, it's a cake that's not thoroughly cooked. And so it's partly burnt and partly raw. Here is the idea. They've overdone some things in one area while lacking in another. And what was that? They've overdone things in the matter of sin. They're burnt to a crisp with sin. But they're raw in their relationship to God. Now there's some things we can say by application of that. So let's talk about a cake not turned. If you're so disposed to mark and underline things in your Bible, you might find that phrase at chapter 7 and in verse 8 and underline that. So when you come back around in future studies, you see that phrase that sometimes we can be like a cake not turned. Whatever that means. What is it talking about? Burn on one side, but raw on the other. Now there are three areas where we want to make some application. Here's the first. Let's talk about sin versus righteousness. It's possible in the matter of sin versus righteousness to be a cake not turned. How so? Well, let's see with reference to Israel. Israel was involved in worldliness. There was worldliness all around them, just like the nations. We saw that in chapter 7. So go back there if you've left that. Put a marker there. That they have mixed themselves, he has mixed themselves among the people. They're among the world. They're like the nations all around them. The nations have caused them to become weak. Let's go to chapter 4. They were burnt with idolatry. They've overdone it with idolatry. Not to suggest that idolatry is okay if you have a little, but they are eaten alive with idolatry. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Harlotry, wine and new wine, enslave the heart. My people as counsel from their wooden idols. They're eaten alive with idolatry. But, on the other hand, they're raw in their devotion to God. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 1, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. They sure are familiar with idolatry, but they're unfamiliar with God. Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, for they shall eat and shall not have enough. They shall commit harlotry and not increase because they have ceased obeying God. You see the point? They're burnt with idolatry, but they're raw when it comes to their devotion to God. So you see this contrast between sin and righteousness. Let's make some application that may fit us. 
Sometimes those who are Christians, it should not be the case, but sometimes those who are Christians can be burnt with filthy language, and yet at the same time they're raw in the praises of God. Christians should control their tongue and not use profanity with their tongue, but there are some Christians who sometimes are burnt with filthy language. They use profanity. They profane the name of God. Even in the Old Testament times, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, you shall not profane the name of the Lord your God. Well, let's look at some New Testament references. Colossians chapter 3. Sometimes there are Christians who use some obscene words, some obscene language. In Colossians chapter 3, in putting off the old man, verse 8 says, but now you must also put off all these. What are you going to put off? Anger, wrath, Malice, blasphemy, and notice the next thing he said, filthy language out of your mouth. This filthy, obscene words ought not to be in the mouth of the Christian, but sometimes it may be. Let's go to the book of Ephesians, the parallel account to that. Let's go to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 29. Again, putting off the old man and putting on the new man, he says at verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Let no foul terms come out of your mouth. And while that may go on among some Christians, that filthy language, foul language, they may be lacking in the praises of God. Rather than using their tongues to praise God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and praising Him in the assembly, Hebrews 13 and in verse 15, singing praises to God, praising God with their tongues, they may be burnt with foul language, but raw with the praises of God. You begin to see the application we can make. Sometimes those who are God's people could be burnt with immodesty, but raw with inward beauty. How so? Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 9. Sometimes those who are claiming to be the people of God, they claim to be among the family of God, will be seen in clothing that is not modest well-arranged, decent, parallel terms to the word modest. Verse 9 said, In like manner also that women adorn themselves with modest apparel. Same word from which we get our word world. Orderly, well-arranged, decent. And some Christians are those who wear clothing that's not modest. Look further at verse 9. They should have shamefastness or shamefacedness. Some of the clothing sometimes wear shows no sense of shame. They don't care what you see. How far you may see. And furthermore, they may not care that their clothing is revealing. Look at 1 Peter 3 and in verse 3. And we're going to look further at the context when you get there. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 3. Do not let your beauty be the outward adorning of the ranging of the hair and the wearing of gold and putting on a fine apparel. The putting on of this fine apparel is not just something that's expensive, but the expensive clothing of the day would be the kind that would cling to the body so that it is not decent. It's revealing because not that you can see through it, but because it clings to the body. So don't let your adorning be the attraction of the body, but rather, he says, let it be the inward adorning. Look at beginning at verse 4. Look at verse 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Quite often people are burnt with immodesty, but they are raw when it comes to this inward adorning of the inward man. But let's go further. 
Sometimes we might be burnt with ungodly entertainment and yet raw with our knowledge of the Word of God. You see, we may watch movies with rank language. Now, we wouldn't use that language ourselves, but we'll watch this movie that has rank language within it. And Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence. Your heart has to do with your mind. Keep your mind pure. Keep what goes through your mind with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You function from what goes into your mind. You feed filth into your mind, filth may come out of your mind. We may watch movies with rank language. We may watch TVs and movies with nakedness. And so we're being conformed to the pressures of the world. Like Romans chapter 12, we're listening and looking and, and conforming to the standards of the world. We may not only watch movies, but we may listen to songs with ungodly messages. We like the beat that it has. We like the tune that it has. But it has an ungodly message. Maybe it's about drinking. Maybe it's about fornication. Maybe it's about premarital, extramarital, sexual relationships. But we like the tune and we listen to that and we're being corrupted. Our good morals are being corrupted by that. 1 Corinthians 15.33 And so while we may be burnt with ungodly entertainment we may be raw with our knowledge of the word where we may not know the text in its context let's go to second peter chapter three do you know the text in its context here's what i mean by that we, we may spend time and i know the words of every uh, every word of this song it's an ungodly but i know every word i've listened to it so many times i know that song i know the next line in this movie though it's not a decent movie but i know the next line i've watched it so many times But we haven't spent enough time with the word that we know the text in its context. Look at verse 16. The apostle Peter said that there are some things that Paul had written which would be twisted and rested or perverted. In other words, they take the text out of its context. What's the danger of that? Look at verse 17. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. You could be led away by that error because they're twisting and perverting and lifting the text out of its context. How can I make sure that doesn't happen to me, that I'm misled by that? Look at verse 18, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge. That's not just a general knowledge, putting it in its context, that's knowing the text within its context. I know what this verse is saying in that context because I've spent time with the text. Isn't it a shame if we are burnt with ungodly entertainment but raw with our knowledge of the word? Sometimes we might be burnt with association with the worldly. And then we might be raw with our association with Christians. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 33. I understand the context dealing with false teachers. I got that. And that is the primary application, but here is a general principle. That evil communication, that is association with evil, can corrupt your good morals. The more I associate with evil, the greater temptation that my morality and my principles are going to be corrupted. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And so the warning is that when we spend a lot of time with non-Christians, even those that are ungodly, they may influence us. And yet we may spend very little time with other Christians and we let those opportunities pass. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 that there was sometimes daily association they had with one another in Acts 2.46? And here is a point by implication. You say, I recognize 1 Corinthians 5 beginning at verse 9. That's talking about withdrawing. It is. And in that you are to 
to withhold that association, keeping company with. Now, what's the implication? If my refusing to associate with them is going to hurt, so it brings them to repentance, that implies we had that relationship beforehand, is what that implies. Now, when we don't have that relationship and we withhold something that has already been withheld, it doesn't have much impact. Here's my point. That suggests that we ought to have the kind of relationship with fellow Christians that if that ends and that stops, that hurts. Isn't it a shame when we sometimes have those who claim to be Christians, they are burnt with their association with the ungodly? They spend a lot of time with the ungodly of the world. They enjoy that relationship with the ungodly of the world, but they pass by those opportunities to be with other Christians. When they're invited, they don't go. When Christians are gathered together in a social setting, they don't participate. And they let that pass by. We're burnt with one relationship, but we're raw in another. Here's another area. We might be burnt with materialism, but raw with spirituality. Burnt with materialism. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We could be easily led astray like Israel was warned in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The warning was that when you get into the land, you're going to have houses you didn't build. You're going to have vineyards you didn't plant and trees that you never set. The warning was, are you reading with me Deuteronomy 6 and verse 12? Beware lest you forget the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt in the house of bondage. He said the tendency is you could, that could crowd out your spirituality. Furthermore, we sometimes feel greater security when we have money. We have material things. That's materialism. Notice the warnings in Proverbs. Turn over to Proverbs 10. I want you to notice a couple of statements made in Proverbs chapter 10 and then one in chapter 11. Proverbs 10 and in verse 15. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. What does that mean? Doesn't mean all rich people. Doesn't mean all rich people have confidence in their money. But the real stronghold of the rich is his money. That is, that's where he puts his confidence. Everything is well as long as he has money. Look at chapter 11 and verse 28. Chapter, he who trusts in his riches will fall. It's possible to put our trust in riches. Maybe it's that we spend most of our time and most of our attention on the material things so that it chokes out and crowds out the spiritual things like in the parable of the sower. Luke 8 and in verse 14. We could be burnt with materialism and yet we could be often lacking in spiritual matters. That we're not giving any attention to our growing spiritually. To our spiritual growth and our spiritual development of adding to our faith virtue to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance. 2 Peter chapter 1. Romans 8 contrasts the spiritually minded man to the man who indeed is carnally minded. Let's go to a second area where we can see some contrast. It's possible, as we've already suggested, like Israel, we're burnt with sin, but raw in our relationship to God. We're a cake unturned. But perhaps we could be a cake unturned. We're raw on one side, we're burnt on the other, where there is a difference between part and all. What do we mean by that? Well, I want to tell you that Christianity is a balanced religion. What do I mean by that? That here is a principle of Christianity that's important, but so is this principle of Christianity just as important. One's just as important as the other. Here's what happens sometimes. We emphasize what's good and right. Nothing wrong with that. 
We emphasize that as being very important, that's essential to follow the Lord, but we might be raw in other areas that the Lord has emphasized. So what are you talking about? Well, let's illustrate with the rich young ruler. Do you remember the rich young ruler, Mark's account of that, said he come running to Jesus. Tells me he's interested in spiritual things. As he got there, he said, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? He has an interest in spiritual things, doesn't he? And Jesus told him to keep the commandments. He said, which one? And he enumerated those commandments. And he said, all of those I've kept from my youth up, those are very important. Oh, they're very important. Like love your neighbor as yourself and honor your father and your mother. To have no other God before you. I've kept all of those, he said. Those are very important. Since my youth, I've been keeping those commandments. Is there anything else that I lack? And Jesus said, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. Now that wasn't all that important. You see, he was burnt with one thing and he was raw with another. So let's talk about things. Maybe both sides are right within themselves. It's possible, you see, I could be burnt with correction, but raw with instruction. In the rearing and the raising of the children. Let's go to Proverbs, the 29th division. And in verse 15. <clears throat> in training and raising our children, verse 15 said, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left himself brings his mother to shame. Quite often we are sure to tell the child when he's wrong. You made a mistake. You disappointed me. You did that wrong. You could have done better. That needs to be done. We may take the rod to the child. The rod will drive that misbehavior far from him, the proverb writer would say. And so we're very strong on the matter of correction. We tell the child when they're wrong, and yet we hardly ever take time to teach. Go to the 13th division of the book of Proverbs. Have you ever seen parents? Perhaps that describes you. Could that describe our dealing with our children? Look at Proverbs 13 in verse 1. A wise son heeds the father's instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Could it be that we're, we're burnt with our correction? We want to make sure the child knows he did wrong, and I need to instruct him of how he did wrong. But there's very little instruction. We don't take time to teach and show them application of the principles, and here's how you live. Perhaps you've seen it, I have too. Parents that always condemning the child, but they're never in teaching or instructing the child. We're cakes unturned. Here's another area where we may do that. And that is we're burnt with providing, but raw with time. You see, there's a great emphasis and needs to be for providing for the welfare of the children. If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. And so show me a father that doesn't provide for his children, and he's worse than an atheist, the text says. He's worthless. And so we give great emphasis to providing for the children. He works long, hard hours in providing for the children, making sure they have everything they need and have their education that they need and doing everything he can to provide for them. And yet maybe there's very little time to be with them. He's always gone. He's not there to talk to them, to play with them, to read them a Bible story, to teach them to pray. He has very little time with those kids. Training them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord, Ephesians chapter six involves time. 
Or we may be burnt with providing. Am I trying to provide for my family? I'm making a living for my family. That's well and that's good. But you may be burnt there, but raw with the time you're spending with your children. Here's another area. And that is we may be burnt with morals, but raw with family roles. The morals are important. We may stand strong and judge one's faithfulness on their moral stand. And rightly so. We look at them and we say, drinking is wrong and you don't need to be drinking. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 3. Immodesty is wrong and you do not need to dress immodestly. 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 9. And dancing is wrong, you don't need to dance. And fornication is wrong. 1 Corinthians 6 and 15. If one is found guilty of one of those, we don't deem them as being faithful. And rightly so. But we may be burnt with that and yet the family roles are treated as secondary principles. We may treat it as if you see, whether they drink is far more important as to whether he's the husband he needs to be. See, the husband may not be a leader. Husbands are to be the head of the wife. It means he leads. He takes responsibility. He gets out front and he pulls and he, he goes in that direction. He leads and shows them how. Some husbands aren't leaders. But we may give great emphasis. He's not a drinker. He's not a fornicator. And that judges him to be faithful but it may be that we treat the family role as so secondary, it's not really important that he's a family leader. She has to do the leading in the family. Some wives are leaders and sometimes get accused of, of wearing the pants in the family, and it may be because she has to because he won't do a thing to lead. And so we treat that as a secondary role. Here's something else about that. Maybe the wife is not submissive and is not a keeper at home, first, uh, Titus chapter 2 and in verse 5. That's not important. That's a secondary role. See, what's important is the morals. We're burnt with morality, but we may be raw with family roles. Here's something else. We might be burnt with condemnation, but raw with forgiveness. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You remember when the fornicator at Corinth was dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They had not dealt with him as they should. And finally they get on board and decide we're going to tell him he's wrong. And they did. And by the time the 2 Corinthians letter is written, they're burnt and raw at the same time. They're a cake unturned. Paul could very well have borrowed that phrase from Hosea and said, you're a Corinth or a cake unturned. You're burnt with condemnation, but you're raw with forgiveness. Look at chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 in verse 11. He said... Uh, let's back up to verse 10. He said, Now to whom I forgive anything, I also forgive. But if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Without going back earlier in the context, he's urging them to forgive. He's repented, now forgive him. Now verse, verse 11, Lest Satan take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. You see, Corinth was quick to tell him you're wrong. And even after he repented, they still told him he was wrong. They were slow to forgive him when he repented. Sometimes we're quick on someone's sin. You've done wrong and you've sinned. And you need to make correction for that. And he does. And yet we're very slow to forgive. We're burnt on one side. We're raw on the other. But here's another matter. We sometimes might be burnt on divorce and remarriage. And yet raw on what a great marriage is. In a lot of places it's just the opposite. 
Sometimes when we take a strong, very conservative stand on divorce and remarriage, as we do here, we could be easily become burnt on divorce and remarriage. What do we mean? We contend for the truth on divorce and remarriage. And so we can quote Matthew 19 in verse 9, and we can tell who has the right to marry and who doesn't have a right to marry, and we're ready to take our stand, and we rightly should, that this person cannot be accepted in the fellowship because their marriage doesn't fit Matthew 19 in verse 9. And we perhaps raise that as the standard of, of marriage, is whether we take the truth or accept the truth on divorce and remarriage. And yet it may be that we're not what we ought to be in the marriage relationship. But we stand true on divorce and remarriage, though. Don't discount that. I know the truth on Matthew 19. Don't discount that. We may be burnt there, but it may be the husband is not treating the wife with honor. Why isn't that just as important as standing square on divorce and remarriage? Husband, dwell with your wives according to understanding. Giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. He may not be treating her with honor. He may not be treating her with respect. But he stands square on divorce and remarriage though. He wouldn't tolerate Aaron. He's a cake unturned. He's burnt on one side and he's raw on the other. Or maybe it's the wife that doesn't guide the house. Or maybe... They're not rendering conjugal rights to one another. We see that's not important. All that matters is you stand square on divorce and remarriage. That's our conservative solid stand. We could easily become a cake that is not turned. But here's the third and final area we want to talk about. We've talked about sin versus righteousness, part versus all. Let's talk about commission versus omission. Commission versus omission. You see, it's possible to sin by commission. What does that mean? That means I do something that God has forbidden. That's what James 2 in verse 9 is talking about. If you have respect of persons, that was forbidden by God. You commit sin. So that's a sin of commission. I do something God has forbidden. God said, don't do that. And I do it. That's sin. We all know that. It's also possible to sin by omission. It's not what I did, it's what I didn't do. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4 and in verse 17. It is also possible to think the sin of commission is worse. And thus we minimize the sin of omission. Why is that? Possible one reason would be one is seen and the other is not. For example, if I tell a lie, and you know I'm telling a lie, that's something easily identified, but you may not know that I'm not praying as I should. You don't see that. You may not see that I'm not really having the right attitude. That may be inward. I might be sinning by omission, just as much or more so than by commission, but we give great emphasis to the sin of commission as being more important than the sin of omission. So we could be burnt on one side, raw on the other. Let's give some examples. We might be burnt with lying is wrong, but raw on attendance. What do I mean by that? Well, we will not tolerate lying. We wouldn't tolerate it in our families. We won't tolerate it in our children. We won't tolerate it in fellow Christians. In Ephesians 4, in putting off the old man, you put away lying from among you. Put it away from you. Have nothing to do with it. Throw it away. All liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And yet attendance and worship may be neglected. 
The very one that has such a fit about lying may be the one that doesn't come half the time, if that much. See, the burnt with lying is wrong, but raw in their service to the Lord. No different than Israel. Here's another area. We might be burnt with stealing a sin, but raw on praying. We wouldn't tolerate stealing. And him that stole still no more, it's a sin. Catch our children stealing, we deal with it. If we caught a brother in the Lord stealing, we're ready to withdraw from it. Rightly so. We don't need to tolerate stealing. We give great emphasis that stealing is a sin. And yet, it may be that I'm not praying as I should. Jesus spoke a parable to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And he ended that parable with this question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? He didn't shift gears. He's talking about prayer. When he comes, will he still have men present among his people that have faith enough and strong enough that they're still praying? Will he find that? Are we always praying? Stealing is sin, that's right, but don't be burnt with that to the neglect of prayer. But here's another matter. It might be that we're burnt with drunkenness is damnable, but we're raw and growing in the word. We won't tolerate drunkenness, and rightly so because it's a sin. It's listed in the sins of the works of the flesh. Those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we're ready to condemn that. Some brother is guilty. We, we come down with him on him with both feet. We stomp him pretty hard over that. That's right. We need to. Drunkenness does not need to be tolerated. And yet we may be raw in our study and our growth. Are we studying? And Paul said, until I come, give attendance unto reading. Are you reading the text? Are you studying your scriptures? Are you being like those in Acts 17, the Bereans who search the scriptures daily? Are you adding to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge? And not only growing in knowledge, are you trying to grow in all of those areas mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 1? Are you trying to grow and be better in love? Trying to grow in endurance? Are you trying to grow in temperance, have more self-control in the future? Are you trying to grow? Is that important to us? You see, we could be raw, burnt with fornication is terrible, and yet raw in obedience to parents. Sometimes teenagers will look around, and young people look around at some of their fellow teenagers they go to school with, and they're having premarital relationships. And they want to have nothing to do with them, and rightly so, because they are ungodly people who commit that kind of sin. And so we will not tolerate fornication because it's sinful. Flee fornication, the text says. And yet we may turn around and deliberately disobey our parents. See, we're burnt on one side and uncooked on the other. We forgot to turn the cake over, didn't we? Why is one so important but the other one is not? In Romans chapter 1, enlisting the sins of the Gentile world. Now, this is interesting. This is the pagan world. These were not those who were considered God. This is the pagan world. One of the sins listed in the pagan world is they were disobedient to their parents. That's what made them so sinful. And in 2 Timothy 3, that's in the context of the perilous times, the grievous times, the fierce times, terrible times, listing of all the sins that made the times so grievous and perilous. One of those was disobedient to parents. We might be burnt... With hatred is ungodly, and yet we're raw in love. 
When somebody manifests a sense of hatred and despisal and they treat us with disdain and show they have hatred like Paul talked about in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, he said he had that kind in his life, that kind of spirit in his life before he became a child of God, before he received the grace of God. Such we were, he said. We were like that. We had hatred in our hearts. We won't tolerate that. And yet we may be lacking in our love for others. With the second greatest commandment, Jesus said, you should love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22. We might be raw in our love. We don't like that hatred, but we might not have that love in our hearts. You see the principle? A cake unturned. Here's a cake that's burnt on one side. It's not flipped over. It's going to be raw on the other. Burn on one side, raw on the other. Could that describe us? It may be we could be burnt with sin, but we're raw in our relationship to God. It might be we're giving great emphasis to part, but not to all. It might be we focus on the sin of commission and forget about that sin of omission. We could easily become a cake unturned. Does that describe me? Does that describe you, a cake not turned? There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?